Right now, though, we are going to talk about something. We've touched on this when it comes to the supply chain and when it comes to finding things on grocery store shelves. But what about the absenteeism rate or how many people are off work who work in grocery stores and how much of an impact could that have on those stores staying open in the future? Well, joining us to talk more about this is Gary Sands, Senior Vice President of Public Policy and Advocacy with the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, How concerned are you when we look at the numbers? And I saw some reports today saying that in some cases, grocery stores have about 30% of their workforce out sick. Yeah, that's an average across the country. I mean, it can range from 25 to 30%. We see that number continuing to to climb. You have to remember, um, you know, grocery is, is a different kind of business. It's one that lends itself to, you know, a lot of contact. When, when your listeners walk into a grocery store, they know you don't see a bunch of cubicles and people at a desk there. You know, it's one that's predicated on, you know, close contact between employees and, and with customers everywhere from, you know, stuff being put on shelves to, to the cashiers. So that's why you're likely seeing the absenteeism, um, which we're seeing throughout the supply chain, but probably a little higher in retail grocery. And I would imagine, too, it's it's would also be that staff members, if somebody is showing a symptom or symptoms, they might have to go in and isolate and monitor that, which would take somebody out, even if they're not positive for COVID or actually sick, it would still take them out of the mix for a few days. That's absolutely right. And that touches on another issue. It's a really good question you ask, because right now, those are the absenteeism percentages we're seeing with people, you know, being absent. But right now... If we don't have access to rapid test kits, um, if somebody comes into contact, an employee comes into contact with another employee who tests positive or or a member of the public, a customer that tests positive, you you have to send that employee home uh, to self-isolate it five, ten days. And um, uh, if we have access to the rapid test kits, that can help us manage the issue a bit better rather than having the issue managing us, which is what our concern is right now. Because if you have come into contact, you know, with those access to the rapid test kits, which we can do, you know, multiple times a day, um, then that allows that employee to stay on the job. So that would mitigate the impact uh, considerably. And so what needs to happen then as far as do you do you know is and I know it changes province to province, but what would you like to see then as far as making those kits available? We'd like to see governments across the country, federal and provincial, come to an agreement that we have an an agreed upon and consistent uh, identification of what constitutes essential services. So I, I'm not suggesting that retail grocery would be the only one on the list. There's ob- obviously other essential services that, that uh, need to be on that list, but we all have to eat. And so retail grocery needs to be on that list. So we need to have a, a clear agreement that retail grocery is a priority for receiving those rapid test kits. And we need to find a, a good way to ensure that we get those test kits to the grocers, to the independents, uh, especially. And the reason I'm saying the independents is not because I work for the Independent Association. I just have to remind people that sometimes we forget when we're in big cities like Toronto, Vancouver, Ottawa, Winnipeg, that independents are in a myriad of communities in this country and in, in, in British Columbia where they're the only game in town. 
they're the only grocery store. So if that grocery store isn't getting um, supplied, if it's if it's uh, looking at being closed due to absenteeism because it becomes too much of an operational challenge, then those those communities have a food security issue. So that's that's why this takes on a, a bit more added importance in terms of getting those test kits into the hands of the independents. And what about the cost of them? Would the independents be in a position where if they could purchase the tests and bring them in for a company screening program, or is that too cost prohibitive? That, that's too cost prohibitive, and especially because of you know some of the other issues that we're facing right now. Remember, retail grocery operates on margins of about one point five to two percent, and that's right across the board. Doesn't matter chain, independent, the, the same thing. And right now, because of the labor shortages and the the, the new the newly implemented um, vaccine mandate for for truckers, we're already seeing costs starting to go up for many products along with shortages by about 30%. So, you know, anyone can do the math. If you're on, on those kind of margins and you're facing cost increases of that magnitude, you know, contemplating, you know, paying for, for thousands of, of rapid test kits is just, just not an option. And this is really, it shouldn't be looked on as a, as a business issue. It should be looked on as a public interest issue. Keeping those stores open um, isn't about, you know, making money. It's it's about continuing to ensure that the people in those communities have food. Right. And like you said, it's it's one thing to think of bigger, more um, uh, urban areas as far as the the supply or the, the choice and the different outlets, but the smaller, smaller places, like you said, if it's the only grocery store in town, then you want to make sure it stays open. That's uh, right. Do you have a sense of vaccination rates? I would imagine it's not mandatory in groceries, but being being workers, like you said, who are very close together, working close together and working with the public, do you, do you get a sense on how the vaccination rates are going? Uh, we don't we don't track that individually with our members, but everything we've heard from across the country is the vaccination rates uh, amongst grocery store employees is very high. We haven't had that uh, brought to us as a as an issue with our members, so that's. That's not an issue, but as you know, uh, and that's the reason we're in the situation that we are, even if you're double vaccinated, you can still get the Omicron variant. And I I personally know people who have have been tested positive for Omicron and have been double vaccinated. So um, we, we would still be required to send those employees home. So many of those employees who are double vaccinated are still absent because they've contacted Omicron. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of workplaces are, are dealing with that and, and seeing that right now. Um, when we talk uh, about the rapid t- tests as well, it's my understanding that there are some companies and that's the food industry as well, but it's larger companies, say 200 or more employees that are having access to those kits. And, and there must be a lot of independent or smaller grocers. Uh, maybe that would fit into the category of not having that many employees. Uh, that, that's correct. There is a, a, a supplementary resource that the federal government has through Health Canada that uh, for some online testing kits that are available. Uh, but right now they've cut it off at 200 employees or more. Um, unfortunately, we haven't been able to get them to budge on that because we've pointed out to them that there are a lot of uh, smaller grocery stores in the country that would maybe have you know 100 employees 150 most of the the bulk of them would fall into that range and those are the ones that we're really concerned about so given the situation that's going on and the, the you know 
again, understanding the context, we're talking about those communities with only one grocery store. We've been asking the federal government to lower that to 100 employees. But as I said, unfortunately, they haven't budged on that. So what do you see happening then in the next few weeks or in the not so distant future if things don't change as far as rapid tests? So we continue to see uh, the, the infections and the exposures increase. Are we going to see grocery stores close down? I, I don't know if we'll get to that point. I honestly don't. I think I, I, I can only tell you that realistically, customers, consumers should be expecting to see product shortages. Um, you might not be getting served as quickly as possible. There might be longer lineups at the cash register because of the staff. If the staff shortages keep uh, escalating, you're going to start seeing a, a price uh, price increases in, in many products because of a variety of factors. And and one is you know the the absenteeism labor shortage that's ripping through the entire supply chain, and and that's compounded to some extent by the new requirement that uh, truckers must be vaccinated. So. Um, a number of those truckers are not vaccinated, so I'm not, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be, but at this time, that has compounded an already difficult situation. All right. Well, we will uh, continue to watch and see what happens. Gary, thanks so much for your time and for being available to talk with us today. Appreciate it. I appreciate it and glad to, uh, glad to join you today. Bye. Thanks for being with us. Well, a new report that has been put out by the BC Real Estate Association finds, well, it has many findings, one of them being that as the Bank of Canada is widely expected to begin raising its overnight policy rate in the coming months, Canadian mortgage rates have already started to rise in anticipation. So what does this mean for real estate in this province? Joining me to talk a little bit more about the report and its findings is Brendan Ogmanson, Chief Economist with the BC Real Estate Association. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the points raised in this report and about, let's start with the, the mortgage rates and the interest rates, and what do you anticipate happening there? Sure. So I think it's widely expected the Bank of Canada is going to start raising rates. Some people think as early as next week at their, their January meeting. Uh, but you know, regardless, rates are likely headed higher this year. Mortgage rates are already you know, approaching where they were pre-pandemic. Uh, there's a bit of a lagged effect with, with how those impact the market. So we should start to see um, uh, those higher rates starting to impact sales in the second half of this year. Uh, but, you know, this report was really looking at what happens when the Bank of Canada is tightening rates kind of over a two-year period once they start. And we found a pretty wide and diverse range of outcomes. You know, usually sales are down about 5% on average across about 10 cycles over 20 years. Uh, at the end of at the end of a year, prices price growth is basically flat uh, at the end of a year. So, but around that is a very diverse uh, array of, of of outcomes for the market if we look at history. And what do those include? Because we we have talked a lot about this in that prices have been going up, supply is quite scarce. So, what does that lead us to? Yeah, that's really important. Is that is what kind of a market is the Bank of Canada tightening? Uh, into. Uh, and in, in this market, we are at historically low levels of, of supply. And that's really important because in order for prices to start to come down, if, if that were the case, you really need an imbalance of supply over demand. Uh, and even with our kind of more aggressive tightening scenarios, that's going to take a long time to build up that kind of supply in the market, uh, such that we would start to see price growth really tipping into negative territory. 
And when you say long time, are you mean you mean the the obvious and that you can't just build a bunch of housing overnight? And especially depending on where you're talking about with regulation and permits and such. Uh, so, how many years would we be looking at, or do you have an idea? We're, we're talking about years, not months. Yeah, in our simulations, we ran a two year uh, simulation. So, from when the Bank of Canada starts tightening rates, and you know whether that's next week or it's, it's June, uh, kind of two years out from when the Bank of Canada starts uh, is when we, we assumed uh, it was sort of our, our projection horizon. Um, and because listings are so low and, and sort of the way our, our models work for these simulations is, you know, sales start to decline because rates are so high, inventory starts to really build, there's just more listings on the market. Uh, and so prices start to, uh, start to correct because of that imbalance. Just because supply is so low, uh, that's going to be a long process. And when we talk about mortgage rates, I mean, it's been several years that there's been talk of brace for the rates going up and uh, people that might be in a scenario where a 1% or 2% hike would actually create a big difference, might make things difficult. Are we still looking at that? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, you know, this is the, the only the second time we're going to see rates increase when we have a stress test as well. So that might really complicate the relationship. You know, maybe changes the historical relationship a bit. Uh, we're seeing mortgage rates right now approaching, you know, going to be three percent probably in the next few months. Um, that's where we were pre-pandemic, uh, and and markets were starting to to come back uh, in 2019 before the uh, before the uh, the pandemic hit. So. I think that we're not really going to see much bend in the market until rates are above uh, kind of three twenty-five to three and a half percent. Then we'll really know like how much bite uh, higher interest rates are going to have. But uh, in, until then, we're just kind of getting back to normal. Right. Okay. Uh, because we are also a province in a country where it's not as though we see huge foreclosure rates, or we haven't in the past, have we? No, I mean, in generally, uh, to generate a lot of stress in the market that, that where we see a lot of foreclosures, you need a lot of financial vulnerability, and you need a combination of high unemployment rate and falling home prices. You can have high unemployment, but as long as home prices aren't falling, uh, you can just sell your house. You don't need to be foreclosed on, which is a very complicated, long process that banks really don't want to get into. So, you know, it, but if, if prices are falling, unemployment's rising, uh, that's the type of situation where you get high foreclosures. If we remember back in the financial crisis when we did have that combination, then we start to get really fire sale kind of inventory in the market, and that causes prices to, to decline a little, a little quicker. Um, that's not really in the cards right now where we have a very strong recovery in the economy. All right. Uh, so how much do you think with, with what's anticipated with the Bank of Canada, is it going to have a big impact? We will, will we see the impact of that on, on housing in the short term? I, I think our, our baseline is that the Bank of Canada will move its overnight rate back to about 1.75% in the next kind of year and a half. Uh, the, over, the, the five-year fixed mortgage rate will be approaching 4%, I think. Uh, that means we're going to see sales start to really normalize back to kind of long-run average levels. You know, we had record high sales last year, so coming down 25% over two years sounds like a lot, but it's really just getting back to normal. Uh, I think that's what's in, in the cards, uh, and I think that we'll see price growth start to moderate uh, kind of at the, uh, in the middle of, uh, of next year. Uh, will they really moderate, though, or how do they moderate when there's still such a lack of supply? Well, the, the, the hope is that we get more supply on the market. So the combination of, of home sales coming back down from, from record highs to no, more normal activity 
in combination with rising supply means there's going to be more choice in the market, uh, less urgency for each transaction, uh, and therefore we'll start to see uh, see growth moderate. So we're still expecting positive growth in, in prices. You know, we don't think prices are going to decline, but but we should uh, get the, the the growth in prices to slow. And does it matter as far as what kind of housing we're looking at? When we look at the assessments that came out and single family going up so much and even townhomes and semi-detached, but we didn't see that same kind of uh, growth in the assessments when we looked at condos, say, in downtown Vancouver. What are you seeing when we're looking at the specific types of housing? This analysis didn't really cover specific types of housing, but I think some some parts of the market are going to be a little more interest rate sensitive. So I think younger buyers with larger mortgages are going to be uh, more interest rate sensitive than, say, um, you know, move up buyers or people with very small mortgages or no mortgages at all. Don't really have to worry about these these sort of price increases or these uh, rate rate increases. Um, so I would expect the more interest rate sectors to be to be more like the condo market, uh, but uh, but we'll have to see. And when you say as far as moderate, uh, when we're talking about the price increases, is there a, a level where, where you would put it as, say, a healthy increase or, or what, do we, what would be optimal in that sense? I think the, the best case scenario for, for the Vancouver market, really for the, the entire Canada's market, would be uh, for, uh, for prices to, to just slow to kind of keep in, 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 uh, in line with inflation. So uh, I would personally like to see prices really stabilize around kind of two to three percent growth. Um, that means a lot of new supply in the market. Uh, you know, right now we've been running at double digit growth in home prices, which is not really healthy for the housing market, not not sustainable. Uh, so anything that can bring home price uh, growth back in line with inflation, I think, would would be a, a best case scenario. All right. Interesting findings. Interesting report. Thanks so much, Brendan, for joining us and walking us through that. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Well, as you heard on that COVID-19 update, gyms and fitness centers in BC will be allowed to reopen January 20th. That will be with COVID-19 restrictions in place. And joining us to react to this and to bring us a bit more on what things will look like is Sarah Hodson, who is the president and CEO Live Well Exercise Clinic, also the president of the Fitness Industry Council of Canada. Sarah, thanks for coming back on the radio today. Thanks again for having me, Jill. Uh, I know it's been a busy day for you. I don't know if you heard, mm-hmm. but but you got a shout out by name in that news conference as well. <laughs> I sure did. And my uh, my phone is definitely lighting up right now. So, um, you know, I think just great to be um, recognized for being, you know, consistent and, you know, in, in a positive way, um, building a strong relationship with our provincial government. And it's, it's easy to be upset and angry and want to want to fight back when, you know, you're told to close your business. And, you know, our our Fitness Association Council of Canada, we wanted to take an, a, a professional approach where we were able to come alongside the provincial government, understand what their needs were, and ensure that the fitness industry could meet those. And that's exactly what we did. And, and that really showed our success today in getting fitness reopened. And I'm sure it is a huge sigh of relief for a lot of operators. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunate, though, that we had to have this conf- Fusion kind of at the 11th hour with a lot saying, what do we do tomorrow? And, and some saying they were going to defy the rules and open anyway. It just seemed like there was a lot of added stress that could have been avoided. Yeah. And, you know, I think that Dr. Henry uh, noted today that, you know, really this came down to a bit of an administrative issue at 12.01 a.m. versus 11.59 p.m. And yesterday that definitely sent a lot of fitness owners 
um, really confused and 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 feeling like the orders were going to be extended and that this was really worst case scenario. So um, really glad that we have the news that we have today. So what do you think it's going to look like then as people head back to the gym as early as January 20th? What will it look like inside those facilities? You know, I, I think that we're we're going to be seeing some really minimal changes from from where we are. I mean, again, we're an industry that has um, put a lot of safety measures in place. Um, we have been an extremely safe industry um, thus far, and we will continue to do that. So, you know, we have the vaccine passport in place. We have had where masking is required, except when you are exercising. Dr. Henry today um, said that, you know, she encourages British Columbians to wear masks when they're exercising, but it isn't required. Um, And for us to just, you know, be reminded of that physical distancing. And so as we reopen our facilities, making sure that we have enough space in our facility for members to move and to provide enough distance between um, between each member. Um, So, you know, I, I think that, again, This is about um, opening safely, and we are absolutely capable of that as an industry. We have proven that we can do that many, many times over, Um, and we are just thrilled to be able to open our doors again to British Columbians because I think that, you know, our physical and our mental health need fitness again. And certainly we were hearing that from people who were very upset learning or, or when, when it was unclear what was going to happen before getting that clarification today. Uh, the the restrictions then also include those occupancy limits, so seven square meters per person. Not that anybody would really know exactly what that looks like or, or up mm-hmm. to 25 people per space. Does that still enable facilities to make a go of it? You can still be financially viable given those restrictions? Yeah, you know, I think that it'll, depending on the business model, I think that it'll, you know, require, you know, a a cutback of a few members in in some facilities. And again, this isn't about um, staff having to walk around a facility and say, hey, you need to keep distance here and you need to keep distance there. This is also about just kind of our social responsibility to one another and about us really being able to determine what is the capacity of the number of people that we can have within a facility. But typically what we have been seeing in fitness is that we have been very conservative on the number of people that we have been allowing into our fitness facilities. And so, again, I think that we will see some changes um, but ultimately, it's just going to be that we have that that space um, around us that I think we're all becoming more and more accustomed to anyways. No, that's very true. And I would imagine also people, uh, even though people have been really eager to get back and wanting to go back to the gyms, it's not as though people really want to go back into a scenario where you're shoulder to shoulder with somebody or you're in a crowded, packed space. So the people who are the patrons, I think, for the most part, probably want that space as well. Yeah, I know. I mean, there's there's absolutely this component of it of, you know, what are the stri- restrictions and what are the safety guidelines? But I think that what we don't talk enough about is that what is the psychology of our members and what is the psychology that comes along with, um, you know, a closure and, and a reopening? And what I can ensure the public of is that Dr. Henry would not reopen fitness if she did not have the utmost confidence that we could be a safe place for people to come to and that the benefits of fitness outweigh the risks of COVID-19. And so I think that knowing that um, we can let down those barriers of fear um, that may, that some people may be experiencing around going back to, to fitness because 
Um, what I can tell you and what the evidence and the science shows us is that the benefits of exercise, especially right now at this time in COVID, far outweigh the risks that we are seeing. Do you see a difference in types of exercise, whether it's, say, taking an aerobic class or a a class where there's a a lot of activity as opposed to, well, not that there's not a lot of activity in yoga, but is there a difference Mm -hmm. if people are concerned about getting into a gym with a group of people? Are there some that you would say are safer than others? You know, I think that, again, um, being sedentary is more of a health risk than smoking, diabetes, and obesity combined. So what I will say is that moving our bodies is the safest thing that we absolutely can do. The guidelines that we have worked with Dr. Henry and her team to establish keep all levels of fitness safe. So they're highly conservative for, say, individual Um, say, uh, value-priced big box gyms. They're very conservative, but they absolutely keep somebody in more of a high-intensity, high-impact type of a workout. They keep those individuals safe also. And so we didn't want to have different restrictions and guidelines for all different types of fitness, and that's why we took the approach that we have today. Are you concerned at all? One of the other issues that's been raised with the, the fitness facilities being closed has been that there were a few that were ruining it for the men Many places that maybe weren't checking vaccine cards or weren't mandating masks be worn when people weren't exercising. Are you concerned about that to kind of behavior? You know, absolutely. But I think that every industry is going to have those operators um, in the industry. And I think that um, the, the public and definitely um, public health and, and our provincial health office are very well aware of who those players are. Um, but ultimately, the greater good of fitness, the majority of fitness owners and those reputable businesses, they are holding the line and they are ensuring that their staff and their members are safe and they are opening up following all of the guidelines that are being asked of them. And how are the gyms and fitness centers doing or are you hearing about uh, people uh, being um staff being absent? I mean, we're seeing in so many other industries as well, because with with Omicron going through the community so much, we are seeing people that either have the virus or isolating because people in their family have it. Uh, Is there any issue with employees uh, keeping up employee levels? Yeah, you know, I think that that'll be something that we will have to kind of visit as we reopen here because we have been closed. um, We haven't been dealing with that kind of acutely as other industries have been. Um, but I think that we, we are aware and Dr. Henry has encouraged us to have a plan in place um, for staffing shortages. And as the Fitness Industry Council of Canada, we've been talking with BC fitness operators and planning and preparing, whether it's staff communication or member communication around this topic. So I do feel that we are planned and prepared. Um, it's now time for us to put that into practice. And you make an interesting point with, with things being shuttered. Do you anticipate that gyms and fitness centers, when will they be ready to, to be back up and running in two days? Um, it really depends on the size of the facility um, because, you know, as you can imagine, opening a, a business is not as easy as just flicking the light switches on. 
we need to have our, our equipment maintained and, um, you know, set up properly and in some cases moved and facilities cleaned and staff rehired and operational procedures put in place and new signage up. And, um, and, and we also have to then go and invest in marketing in order to get our current members back as well as to bring in all of the prospective British Columbians who were really looking forward to the new year as a time for them to really kickstart their fitness. And, um, you know, January 20th is the new January 1st. And so we invite all British Columbians to, you know, look at that date and to put their health first and go and join the gym and, and make fitness part of your, part of your lifestyle. Because um, again, the health benefits um, outweigh anything else. And um, so I, I really think that that's, that's the future and that's how we're moving. All right, Sarah Hudson, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Shelley. Well, as you've been hearing on the news today, some good news when it comes to the Coquihalla Highway opening much earlier than previously thought, set to open to regular traffic tomorrow. That's regular vehicle traffic between Hope and Merritt. Transportation Minister Rob Fleming made that announcement earlier today. So joining us to talk more about this is Dave Earle, the president of the BC Trucking Association. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, what's your response to this news? Oh, just, I mean, again, so pleased uh, with all the work of all the women and men who've been working literally day and night, seven days a week through just atrocious weather conditions uh, to get us back to where we are. I mean, this is one more step on the, uh, on the way back to a degree of stability and then eventually recovery. Uh, the transportation minister was asked if he was surprised by this, uh, the reopening so early. Uh, he said he was pleasantly surprised. Uh, were you surprised as well? Or is this a case of they put the the deadline or they put the completion date kind of far out uh, and now it looks much better? No, I think this is something that everybody's been quite surprised at about how quickly we could uh, we could see progress coming back. Um, I don't think this was a case of, uh, of under committing and over delivery. Uh, it was very much a case of, you know, let's figure out the, the, the best possible outcome of what we're looking at. And then as time progressed, we uh, we found that we were able to repair a lot of the, uh, the, the damage a lot more quickly than anybody thought. So uh, I think it's just a case of uh, some really hard work and some uh, some diligence. What has it been like with for truck drivers with the, these closures or with the restrictions on a lot of the main highways? Well, I mean, it, it, the reopening of Highway 5 to commercial traffic was really a game changer. Uh, up to that point, Highway 3, uh, it's just not able to, to do the work, let alone catch up from where we were at. Uh, I heard from a carrier today, there's still hundreds of loads behind uh, in, in terms of their delivery commitments uh, from November. That's just from the impact of the storm. So even though uh, we're back to operating. It's still slower. Um, it's taking where we're hearing from our members 30 to 40 percent longer than it did uh, pre-disaster. Uh, that's a little longer than the ministry's hearing, but uh, we just rely on the surveys that we hear from our members and their drivers. Um, but it just it's telling us it's taking a lot longer to catch up. Um, we'll get there. It's just uh, it's going to take a bit longer than anybody thought. Uh, but again, just remarkable progress to be where we're at today. Uh, will this cause any issues for drivers, though, that maybe that had been deemed essential and that were on the route, which will now be kind of back in the mix with all non-commercial vehicles? 
Yeah, always, Jill. That, that's the number one concern that we have is for people that are thinking about going back onto, onto Highway 5. Uh, I cannot impress upon them enough. This is not a return to normal. This is not a reopening. Uh, the route is still open for limited use. There is not one stretch of it that's more than 100 kilometers an hour permissible speed limit. Uh, it's been reduced right across the board. There are long stretches that are at 60 kilometers an hour, one lane in each direction. Um, it is still a high mountain road and people need to be prepared for winter driving conditions. Uh, it's going to take longer to get where they're going. Um, it is not a reopening back to where we were. Uh, and you make a, a good point because even when we saw the roads start to reopen, we saw drivers being ticketed. We saw some pretty dangerous activity by some drivers on those roads. Are you, you must be concerned, though. It does in the announcement today. It was such a, a good news. I think a good news announcement. There wasn't a whole lot put on what you just said in that it's not business as usual. Yeah, and that's something that I know the ministry is very aware of, and they'll be working to do lots of education. Uh, and a lot of enforcement, both from BC Highway Patrol and the uh, commercial vehicle safety enforcement for both commercial vehicles and light vehicles. Uh, people that travel that corridor should expect very, very heavy enforcement. Um, you know, we just cannot have it shut down. Uh, we can't have problems. And uh, we've seen that with commercial vehicles. We've seen heavy enforcement. We've seen carriers uh, who have had their entire license to operate pulled uh, because of the actions of one driver. Um, this is serious business, and the professionals that are on the road are, are expected to behave in that fashion, uh, and we expect uh, that that standard of behavior will be held right across the board. Uh, I know. I don't know if this would impact many of your members uh, as well, but we also know that the weight restrictions on Highway 99 between Pemberton and Lillooet are also going to be lifted. Is that even a route that truckers use? Not a heavy route for truckers to use, and we don't encourage members to use it unless they have very good equipment and have some good training and experience. Uh, It's not a route that's designed for heavy equipment and heavy vehicles. It's just not. Um, While it can be used and uh, it's important that it's available for for use on direct routes, it's not something that we would recommend uh, long-haul trucks, for example, to use as an alternate route into the lower mainland. Uh, For those people that haven't driven that route, it is stunningly beautiful, uh, but it's extremely difficult. Lots of switchbacks, very steep grades. Um, It's not a, a primary highway. Uh, something that's available for use, but we don't recommend it for uh, for long-haul use. All right. You mentioned as well that there are still uh, so many drivers that are, are so behind on deliveries on, on that. How long, or do you have an idea on how long it might potentially take to get caught up? Jill, we, we really don't know. And I mean, so much of it is, is, is in, in flux. It's all going to depend uh, on, on weather conditions, on road events, on road maintenance, on availability of drivers and equipment. Um, you know, the industry is recovering. And I mean, thankfully, we've seen infrastructure recover more quickly uh, than we thought it would. I'm hopeful that that trend continues and we can uh, continue to dig our way out and uh, in a matter of weeks or perhaps a couple of months be back to a place where we're uh, we're mostly caught up. But um, it's very difficult. Uh, it's just taking longer and uh, we're still under a, a lot of pressure in the supply chain in terms of trying just to be able to meet current demand, uh, let alone what happens in the, in, in the spring and summer as uh, activity ramps up and economic activity ramps up. Yeah, a lot, a lot happening for sure. Uh, I know this mm-hmm. isn't all your the members of your trucking association as well, but are you seeing any fallout or any changes because of the vaccine mandate, uh, particularly with drivers that go across the border? 
Yeah, we're starting to, to, to see and, and hear some impacts on that. We expect to see more of that over the next two to three weeks uh, as the routes, as drivers come back and then are redispatched. Um, we're going to lose 10 to 15 percent of, of cross-border drivers. Um, that's just the math, Jill. Um, that's what it looks like in, in terms of general population for those that aren't fully vaccinated. And this is fully vaccinated. Partial vaccination won't do it for you. Um, so there's there's a period here where we're going to lose that. And that's 800 to 1,000 drivers uh, out of that cohort um, that we're going to lose. And that's going to be very, very hard to make up. Um, now those drivers will be redispatched and be able to do some interprovincial work, to be able to do some local work. Um, there will be a bit of adjustment in the industry to be certain, but uh, there's going to be impacts on the supply chain without a doubt. And how much do you think, or can you anticipate, 10 to 15% seems like a pretty high number. Do you, do you anticipate how much of an impact? Well, we don't know quite yet. And see, one of the things when you remove that level of capacity, there's always a rationalization in terms of, you know, trying to find different ways and different levels of efficiency because the costs are going to move up. So it becomes more efficient to do things a different way. Um, we're hopeful we're going to see some of that that will mitigate this. Uh, but it's a simple supply and demand. Um, you know, when you look at it, um, the population in Canada, depending on the jurisdiction, you're anywhere from 85 to 90 percent fully vaccinated, which is fabulous. Um, the flip side of that means is that it's 10 to 15 percent that aren't. And so in any given population, uh, and when you look at the, the, the tens and hundreds of thousands of commercial operators in, in Canada, um, the numbers get pretty big pretty quick. And so when we look at, uh, in rough numbers, the amount of British Columbia residents that run transborder, um, it's roughly uh, 800 to 1,000 that we're probably going to lose. All right. Uh, Dave, just before I let you go, and you kind of touched on this, but uh, your final warning or, or advice for anybody excited about the Coquihalla reopening who heads, uh, plans to head out on that highway in the next few days? Make sure you're equipped. That's proper winter tires, that's blankets, that's food, that's water. You don't know what you're going to get into at any time. Best of the years or not, the highway can close because of weather events and you can find yourself stuck there for a number of hours. Make sure you're equipped and pack lots of patience. It is not going to be the simple, uh, you know, merry drive into the interior. You have to pay attention. There's a lot of uh, traffic control in place um, and you're going to need to be patient. All right. On that note, thank you so much for joining us today to talk more about this. Thanks for having me.